Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Legends of Retail podcast brought to you by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce so you can learn from them about retail strategy, leadership, team management, and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, co-founder and president of Convictional. What is Convictional? In short, retailers use Convictional to connect to vendors for dropship and curated marketplace. My guest today is an e-commerce startup entrepreneur and a very dear friend of mine, Alex Beller. Alex Beller is the co-founder and president of Postscript. After spending years on the brand side of e-commerce, Alex started Postscript to help brands build a mobile-first retention channel. Postscript powers SMS for thousands of Shopify stores, including brands like Native, Brooklinen, and Olipop. They use Postscript for everything from abandoned carts to product drops to two-way customer support communication and much more. I actually know Alex from our time together at Y Combinator. Postscript and Convictional back in early 2019 were in the same Y Combinator cohort. So I got to see Postscript's early growth very closely, and Alex and I have stayed in touch ever since. In this conversation, Alex and I chat about Postscript's rise to become the de facto SMS messaging platform for Shopify merchants. We also talk about why SMS matters for building stronger customer relationships and Alex's recommendations to e-commerce merchants for this year's holiday season. We get tactical. We also discuss the struggles of scaling our respective companies, the lasting impact that Y Combinator had on us, and our respective remote work cultures. Here's my conversation with Alex Beller, co-founder and president of Postscript. Alex Beller, welcome to Legends of Retail. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here on your show. Uh, and it's great to see you again. It's been too long. Been too long. And we've known each other for several years now, pretty much since the beginning of both of our respective companies. Uh, we were actually in the same YC batch. And in our YC batch, there were 205 companies, which at the time was just like mind-boggling how you know were there even 205 startups in the world um let alone that many in this uh winter 19 batch and they split all of the startups in the yc batch into these little subgroups and i think there may be like 20 of them or something and we were lucky enough to be in that same subgroup along with a handful of other startups so we got to know each other pretty well back in those days yeah uh that was a lot of fun i've been reflecting actually on how well our little our little group has done from within that batch. There's a whole bunch of heavy hitting companies from our from our small group. There was like eight companies in there, and I think almost all of them are still kicking, and a lot of them are flourishing. There's Gorian and Ashby, and us two. I'm missing some Chef. <laughs> so many that are like just absolutely crushing it in their own respective verticals. But in any case, for most of us in that subgroup, it didn't always look like we were gonna survive. Uh, and I think the one company that was an exception to that was Postscript. Uh, I recall very vividly um, coming to group office hours where we would, you know, sit around in a circle and Michael Seibel, uh, CEO of, of Y Combinator, would ask us, you know, what you accomplished the, the previous week. And you and your co-founders would always show up and be like, yeah, we closed like 50K and ARR. And the rest of us are like, how the heck did they do that? So, you know, I think my, my um, 
my experience of PostScript during YC was that you had a lot of strong growth from the beginning. And for listeners, maybe let's go back to those YC days. What did you get out of the YC experience? Yeah, it's funny to hear that from your perspective, because uh, I know that that is what we were coming in and saying. But, you know, in those days, especially everyone's just so like in their own world. Um, so we started PostScript thinking that it was going to be a passive side business. We didn't know much about the market we were launching into. And so we thought that we were solving a very specific problem, enabling brands on Shopify to send text messages, and that this could be a small passive side business and we'd each make a few thousand dollars a month from it. And right when we launched, we very quickly just saw that pull from the market and we found product market fit pretty quickly. And um, that first year during which we were in YC and in the, and in the small group with you, uh, we saw a lot of growth and it was really just like pull from the market. It was word of mouth. It was inbound. And um, the YC experience during that, I think, led to a probably like one and a half to maybe like two and a half year shortcut in terms of our development and our growth. Like for us, we we'd all worked in tech, but we hadn't come from like the most polished or traditional startups. And so... We were from LA and Phoenix. We didn't have connections to really any investors at all. We didn't know how to think about that process. And so by going through we, YC, we were able to move so much faster on fundraising. We were able to learn how that works. We were able to learn so much about just like how to orient yourself to the early days of a startup, what to focus on versus not. I mean, we got really good coaching from our group partners, especially around like not worrying about competition in those early days and just focusing on your customers because there's a lot of noisy competition back then. Um, and all those things together really just led to like a, a huge shortcut in our development. Totally agree with the shortcut in development. And I mean, uh, as a Canadian, we tend to be less ambitious than our counterparts uh, south of the border. And so for us, you know, it was a similar experience of basically having the group partners show us just how big this thing could be and then helping us articulate a path to it. And then everything comes down to execution, right? So around focusing on customers and um, growing uh, compounding usage or revenue weekly. Uh, those were the things that actually mattered as, as opposed to all of the noise like com competition or even fundraising. Um, did you have any favorite memories from, from the batch? There's a lot of fond memories. Uh, th there's, there's two that stand out. One was the day we got in, which was the day we went and interviewed. Uh, we had no expectations of getting in. All of us had applied and been rejected from YC before for other ideas. And so to be able to get invited to an interview, and then we went and we prepared so hard for it. And we walked out of there like incredibly confident. We were like, we think we nailed it. And then to get the call from Tim Brady that night, that was just, it, it, felt, like, uh, it felt like our fortunes had changed just in that one moment. And that was a highlight. We were, we were on a train. Uh, and the other moment that stands out is kind of the other end of the spectrum, which Kevin Hale, who is one of, uh, one of mine and your group partners, uh, we did office hours with him one time. And we knew that he was like a design-oriented leader. And so we went to him with some like pretty specific like design stuff that we were working through. Uh, and he just like completely like scolded us and put us in our place. It was the toughest of love. It was like, why are you guys focused on this? Like you're growing revenue. You have a bunch of customers. Like go focus on like doing whatever it is to like increase revenue and learn more from your customers. Like stop tinkering with like 
in-app product design. And like he came down on us so hard over that, uh, that that was like a really crystallizing learning moment for us along the way. And um, definitely a, a fond highlight as well. Uh, it's so interesting you say that because I, I think we had the the opposite uh, interview experience where we just got totally our, our plan, all the preparation that we did, including the 12 or so real mock interviews with YC alumni, just, you know, all of that preparation evaporated within the first 10 seconds of the interview because oh, I think wow. they, caught on, they caught on to the fact that we were so prepared that they just decided, okay, we're going to take a different tact here and just see how they adapt. Um and, uh, you know, one of the fond memories was just Michael Seibel asking, how are you guys going to be a $10 billion company three times back to back and like grilling Roger on his prior answers to tighten it up and use less jargon, be more precise, be simpler. And we walked out of there feeling completely defeated, um, despite the preparation that we had done. And, uh, you know, we got the call from Kevin, thankfully, but agreed on changing of fortunes. Do you remember like some of the other like ideas that you applied for? And I'm curious, you know, if you know, maybe you had other experiences that were intense, like the ones that we had. Yeah. So uh, I do remember the other ideas. Um, they were they were not good, <laughs> as these things often are. So I applied uh, back in the day for with an affiliate commerce concept. Um, do you are you familiar with the wire cutter? I worked in affiliate and within e-commerce, and I felt like there was an opportunity to have a whole network, a whole series of incredibly like high-end affiliate-driven product review sites in different categories. Have one for outdoor gear, have one for parenting and baby products, right? Just kind of category by category. And uh, didn't even get an email back. Um, maybe they sent me a rejection email, I don't know. And Adam and Colin, who are my two co-founders, they applied with a business that they did. They ran a mobile gaming company. Uh, it was called Wiblets and it had a little bit of traction. It ramped to like a hundred thousand users, but they didn't know how to monetize it. This was like early, early days of gaming. And they also got rejected for that. All right. Well, one of the uh, beauties of YC is that you can continue to apply and take the lessons as learning and, and the hard knocks as learning and, and uh, up your game. Uh, but I think you know, the fact that Postscript has done that did so well out of the gate is telling that perhaps their intuition on picking is actually quite good. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious maybe even to go back before the YC days, dive into the origins of Postscript. You know, SMS wasn't really a brand new technology uh, when Postscript uh, was founded, been around for quite some time. Um, I think the first text message was sent back in like 1992. So um, it's come a long way since, but wasn't certainly a new technology. Uh, so what was the opportunity that you and your co-founder saw in SMS when you finally got started in 2018? And why do you think that it hadn't already been successful in the world of e-commerce? The opportunity we saw was fueled by the experiences we were having. Uh, it's an interesting question. And so what happened was we were working in e-commerce on the brand side of things, not the technology side of things. And we were seeing some of the macro trends that are going to sound really old today, but five years ago were maybe interesting, which was that mobile traffic, mobile shopping traffic was increasing as a percentage of overall shopping traffic, like every single year greatly. And desktop had plateaued. And at the same time, email marketing performance, at least in the business we were working inside of, had plateaued as well. Uh, and so 
Adam and I who work together were, you know, interested in this idea of uh, like, what is going to be the mobile first retention channel? Is it going to be email? Is it going to be something else? And then we had a friend who ran a lifestyle business on Shopify who actually complained to Adam about not being able to text his customers. And it was like, that was a very specific problem. And at the time, brands weren't sending out texts. Like texts had been around for a really long time. And maybe a few people would be on like Chipotle's SMS list or something like that, but it hadn't been democratized at all. And I think that the reason it hadn't is twofold. One is like the Though SMS has existed for a long time, most of that has been peer-to-peer and what's called A-to-peer or application-to-peer messaging, right? A company sending out a million messages at month of, at once instead of me and you texting one another. That was like, that's been a newer thing. And additionally, consumers weren't ready for it. Like it's taken a long time for actual end consumers to be open to receiving text messages from companies. Like, yeah, we get two-factor authentic text from like Twitter when we're logging in or whatever, but actually receiving like marketing or uh, transactional communication. I think people were very protective of their SMS inbox for a long time. And as happens in, in all messaging ecosystems, over time that like protectiveness comes down a little bit and companies kind of force their way in and slowly things go from like weird and new to normal and standard. And so I think it's a mix of the technology on the messaging side, the ease of use technology being built out, right? With things, what we do or what our competitors do, making it easier for marketers to access messaging versus developers. And then lastly, uh, end consumers finally being ready. The phone, specifically text messages, seems like such an intimate channel in that if a brand were to rush into that channel and be the first, you could imagine that it would probably be met with a little bit of like caution or skepticism from the consumer who's trying to really protect that channel. And so what seems to have happened over at least the past couple of years is this like Cambrian explosion of brands adopting SMS almost all at the same time. And, you know, consumers have had really no choice but to except that this is a way that they can engage with customers. And I think that one of the interesting things that PostScript is working or trying to solve is like, how do we make those text messages conversational so that it's not met with skepticism and disdain? And so one of the concepts that I've seen you and the rest of the folks at PostScript really pioneer is conversational commerce. I'm curious if you can break down that concept for our listeners. Sure. So... It really is the focus of, of what we're doing here at PostScript. And what goes into it is that if you look at how uh, marketing has existed on email from a very long time, right, where people are sending out one-to-many automated communication, uh, everyone's customers are getting abandoned cart messages. Everyone's customers are receiving giant untargeted campaign blasts when a new product comes out or when there's a promotion of some kind. Well, as SMS has become in the mainstream of marketing for e-commerce brands, they've taken and mapped a lot of those email best practices onto text messaging. And it makes sense, right? And But what's been missed in that is that actual end consumers interact with text messages very differently than they do with their email inbox, right? The core thing is we've had an email inbox for a long time where we get promotions and one-way newsletters through. Text messaging is a two-way system and people interact with one another back and forth all day long. So conversational commerce is about building out and enabling two-way use cases native to e-commerce in the SMS thread. So to be more specific, things that uh, users normally go to a website to do, maybe it's to place a purchase, 
Maybe it's to initiate a return, talk to support, submit a review, shop around and get more information. We're building a platform that will allow all of those use cases to actually happen natively in the thread. So consumers can do those sorts of things without clicking through to a website. So that's the that's one aspect of conversational commerce. The other is that conversations don't happen through like untargeted blast-based messaging. They happen through hyper-relevant two-way communication. And so we're trying to set the norm in the market. And we're also trying to build technology that makes it easy for brands to have targeted two-way interactions with their customers, to go back and forth, to capture information from them, to send them relevant recommendations, to answer questions they have, things like that. It- opens up a lot of possibilities for how commerce will change and even new applications of commerce with this channel. What is the theoretical maximum of conversational commerce at PostScript? Like when you think, you know, five, 10 years out, what will the company's products look like? How will it engage with customers or how will your customers engage with their customers? Curious about your thoughts on that. Sure. So I think that we're probably 5% of the way into this transition. And where I would say we are right now is that some of these concepts exist, but very, very, very few brands are adopting the sort of tactics I'm talking about or the sort of approach I'm talking about. And I think that's because it's early days of a new marketing channel. There's an arbitrage opportunity just through doing basic one-to-many marketing. So people are making money and that's fine. I think that the the theoretical maximums, interesting question. I think that there's a few different aspects of this. One is that a user wouldn't have to visit a website to be supported by or or interact or complete the entire customer journey with a brand. All of that could happen natively in the messaging thread. The other aspect of this is that uh, consumers will probably only belong to or participate in several text message lists, probably their, their favorite brands or the ones who provide the best experience. And through that, they will receive very targeted, relevant, automated interactions which make them feel more like a human commerce interaction, like they're having a retail experience at a store, than they're in an email drip campaign. It's interesting to imagine a world where the like the website e-commerce shopping experience no longer exists because it doesn't have to. It's actually inconvenient to go to like uh, a URL bar, type in the you know, Google maybe what you want to buy or find the uh, site of the brand or retailer and then search a giant catalog. Like you can imagine this world where the brand or retailer initiates the purchase with the customer through text by almost predicting what it is they want to buy or by simply asking the right questions in the thread and then serving up the right product. And so there's a whole slew of different ways that could be potentially achieved. But there's this like, you know, website zero based purchasing behavior that I think so many brands and retailers would love to get to, especially as the size of their catalogs have to increase in order to compete with the likes of Amazon and other major marketplaces. Um, And so if we kind of think a little bit more about mobile uh, post iOS 14 world, uh, this is an area of e-commerce and marketing that I'm less familiar with, but in sort of a post iOS 14 world where first party data has become incredibly important, what role do you think SMS plays for brands? I think a vital one. And we've seen the market respond that way and validate that. So a couple different things. The first is that SMS is an own channel. Uh, whether Whenever a brand starts to build out this marketing asset, starts to build their text message list, that's something that they own, right? It's 
different than, you know, their Facebook ads account in that they own that customer data. They can migrate their list to or from Postscript to any other provider that's an owned asset. And they can reach out to those users whenever they want to once they have the opt-in. Uh, that makes them less dependent on, on external platforms and changing algorithms. The other piece of this is that telephony and SMS specifically is an open protocol similar to email, right? It isn't a closed owned network like WhatsApp or like Facebook Messenger uh, that, you know, you never know like what sort of regulation or changes are going to come down. SMS is open. Um, so those are like good things to invest in after getting like smacked in the face by iOS 14. Um, however, more specifically to answer your question, and this fits within the conversational narrative that, that we're seeing and we're exploring, is that the brands doing the best work on SMS, they are using this like very high engagement channel as a place to capture information about their customers, to capture zero party data. And so what this looks like is instead of a welcome series saying, here's 10% off, buy this, buy this, buy this, it's actually going back and forth with customers in automated conversation, learning about them, gathering preferences, learning if they're men or women, learning what they're interested in, learning what sort of customer they are, associate, holding that data, associating it with the subscriber profile, and then targeting them based on that information moving forward. So the actual ability to capture data back from customers in a text message thread is really powerful. And we're starting to see adoption there. You used a term there that uh, is really interesting, zero party data. Could you just briefly define uh, what you mean by that? And maybe even a couple of examples that, uh, if any, come to mind. Sure. So zero party data, uh, which is not something that we created, it is a thing, um, is essentially data submitted and captured directly from the user. So it's not third-party data purchased or targeted against the user, uh, or it's not first-party data that's been uh, purchased about a user. It is zero-party data, meaning data that the user themselves has submitted about themselves. Got it. Okay. And and they're volunteering that information. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. That is, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's un, you know, behaviorally, you'd probably see very little of... Uh, customers being willing to provide zero-party data in response to, say, an email uh, as opposed to an SMS. And that's just a big unlock for brands that are exploring this as a channel. It, it is. And we see the performance difference. Like, And it, this isn't rocket science, but like, if you have more information about a subscriber because you know their gender or because you know why they came to your site or because you know a particular product they're interested in or collection or... Uh, or, or whatever, you can target them with more relevant marketing and conversion rates go up. Makes total sense. A, um, a trend we're seeing in retail and e-commerce uh, is brands setting up you know, third-party marketplaces to basically supplement revenue on their core business, right? So um, thinking of one customer that we have made.com, they make uh, furniture, and they basically saw, hey, look, you know, we every time we add a SKU, it just drives tremendous revenue for the business. Let's go explore this in non-competitive categories that really complement the core. Um, and I want to somehow tie that back to SMS because in uh, this past August, Glossy surveyed 46 fashion and beauty brands and 37% of them introduced a third-party marketplace to their stores. So when you're shipping products from, say, third-party brands to your customers, one of the risks is that you dilute your customer experience. Can you speak to how 
maybe retailers or brands on the PostScript platform are using SMS to create a consistent brand experience for their customers, whether it's through you know support or retention? Sure, absolutely. So this is a use case we see and we're seeing more of to your point. Um, and what it comes down to is that this is kind of the, the most personal communication channel that exists today between brands and consumers. The text message in- inbox is still sacred. And if brands are messaging their customers in there, that's pretty personal space. And so that means it can be used for better or worse for pretty personal experiences. So uh, what we see like the best practice for this use case is, is uh, ensuring that it is really leaning into like the transactional side of text messaging. So if you're selling third-party brands uh, on your site or through your marketplace, um, of course, trying to use zero-party data capture to have like very relevant messaging and preferences set up in text. But beyond that, um, we see a lot of brands utilizing follow-ups. So what I mean by that is using text messages, not just for marketing purposes, but also post-purchase, post-order delivery to check in with customers, to solicit support inquiries if needed, to ensure that the quality is there just because if a marketplace is drop shipping or even not drop shipping, but just sending out third-party brands, they're probably a little bit less connect- connected to uh, the quality or what the actual customer experience is. And text messaging is a great place to check in with your customers, solicit if any support is needed, and ensure that the delivered experience was what they wanted. It is a challenge for these retailers and brands that want to unlock more assortment without holding inventory. And I think especially in the world of Shopify, the term dropship just conjures up <laughs> these, uh, I don't want to say um, you know young people, but they're often very young people trying to get rich quick. And yet, you know, retail executives see it as a very viable business strategy, especially with the backdrop of the of the current macro environment. So we have this own we have this challenge of like trying to effectively change the stigma around it because of how viable it actually is when you partner with high quality brands. But to your point, you know, the retailer still has to take accountability for the customer support through the fulfillment lifecycle to the returns in order for it to be successful. And SMS sounds like it could be a way to facilitate some of those interactions in a little bit more of like a pleasant, you know, customer first way. Definitely, especially for uh, retailers who are maybe a little bit more new to this. I think it's like a great way to ensure that you're keeping close to the customer experience. Gotcha. Um, I want to jump to everyone's favorite topic these days, which is the holiday season. Uh, retailers are definitely heads down thinking about this, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, uh, holiday shopping season. And I'm curious about how this might apply to the world of SMS. So what are some best practices um, throughout your years of experience building PostScript, seeing brands be successful with SMS um, that they can use to apply to really maximize this year's holiday shopping season? Absolutely. So this is going to be my fifth Black Friday, Cyber Monday at PostScript and probably like my 12th in e-commerce. It's a little bit, hits different a little every year. Um, So there's a few best practices that I would push every single brand towards. The first is you should be list building aggressively all year, but especially right now. And you shouldn't stop that through Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Oftentimes, those are the highest trafficked days. So even if those users aren't converting, you still want to capture them onto your list. Every brand should be aggressively list building through both on-site pop-up capture, through banners, through keyword 
inserts and uh, packaging inserts at checkout across the board. Um, that's more tactical. The second is on the strategic side. Every well-built SMS program, you should ensure going into the holidays that you have non-marketing post-purchase automation set up, right? So this is, I mentioned this earlier actually, but this is checking with customers, ensuring that uh, tracking links are going out, letting them know when packages have been delivered, checking in with them afterward to ensure they're happy with the purchase or if they need any, any support. Initiating those via text message are great, and it drives down unsubscribes when you also engage transactionally versus just marketing to people all the time. The last tenet of this is don't be shy. In general, what we see with unsubscribes, and this is something I talk to merchants about all the time, is they don't want to overmarket, right? A lot of marketers out there are still a little bit nervous about leaning in on the text thread, and they don't want to annoy their customers. And what so what I would say is twofold. One, the first 30 days that someone spends on your text list are different than the rest. We see that users are five times as likely to unsubscribe within the first 30 days than they are thereafter, which means new people coming onto your list, you want to give them a VIP experience. You don't want to overmarket them. But after that, Folks' tolerance to receive marketing, especially during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, is much higher than you think. So like having that sort of mindset of like not wanting to overmarket to your list, that is the right mindset, but not during Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Don't hold back on text. The, the unsubscribes will be worth it. And as long as folks are outside their first 30 days, you're safe to market to them. Those tactics are pure gold for brands and retailers who are just getting started with this as a channel. And... I think you know there are some e-commerce platforms even that make it um, easy to, or, or that that are very complementary to the way of thinking about how you market to consumers, giving them a VIP experience. And one of those platforms that I think you've aligned very closely to is Shopify um, exclusively. Uh, and other folks in the SMS space are taking a little bit more of like a platform agnostic approach out of the gate. Um, you know, is is platform dependency and lock-in a concern for you? Or do you think that it makes PostScript the de facto SMS marketing tool of choice for Shopify merchants? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it's part of why we win, but I don't want us to be there forever. So what I mean is what our mission at PostScript is to make SMS the number one revenue channel for e-commerce merchants. That's like what we show up to do. And that requires focus. That requires focusing on the channel and that requires focusing on a specific ICP or customer type, right? And so I don't want anyone in the world to be able to use PostScript. I don't want uh, random blogs or non-e-commerce sites or use cases that aren't like native to what we do to want to use PostScript. I don't want our team to be focused on servicing them. I don't want our engineers focused on building features for them. Instead, I want the product and the experience and the team to be the most knowledgeable and the absolute best at servicing SMS for brands on Shopify. So that's why we started and that's why we focused here and, and that pays off because brands will make more money using PostScript than they will a competitor. Um, the flip side of that though is, will we expand beyond Shopify? Definitely. Um, when, when we feel the time is right, we will certainly expand to some other e-commerce platforms and uh, spread out across um, some other use cases, but it's still so early in this core one that we're focused on it. It also, I mean, there's so so much depth to the Shopify platform and the ecosystem that uh, there's probably still a lot of market to grow into. Um, and, you know, it, it, it probably has, well, maybe actually not. I mean, you, you've done very well. You've grown quickly. Um, and with that growth, you've likely had to think a little bit about 
you know, how you architect the team and culture. So one of the common traits that we discovered about uh, PostScript and Convictional back in our YC days was that we're both uh, remote uh, and we both do a lot of async stuff. So I'd love to learn about what your remote culture is like, and then maybe we can tease out some um, tactics or recommendations that other companies, both brands, retailers, and even just you know startups or uh, other types of businesses may have if, if they want to endeavor to build a successful remote culture. So I'm a little in awe of how you guys are building Convictional. I've read, I've read the online manifestos and the guides, which by the way, if anyone hasn't, you should. Uh, you all have a very particular point of view, which I think probably leads to focus, unity, like a lot of good stuff. Um, so PostScript is fully remote. We've been that way from the start, spread out across the US and Canada. We lean in on asynchronous tooling and asynchronous communication, but we are not an asynchronous company. We actually kind of have like a meetings heavy culture and an alignment heavy culture. And I think that that's a big difference between our two orgs. So we use Looms, we write memos, we collab in Google Docs, but there's also a lot of meetings. There's, and beyond one-on-ones, right? There's like quarterly kickoffs, quarterly reviews. There's a bi-weekly all hands. Our management team does an exec stand-up. There's team level stand-ups. And so uh, I think we're pretty different in that way. Yeah, we try to be <laughs> uh, minimalistic when it comes to meetings. I mean, that has benefits to deep work, right? Um, if you are architecting your calendar for more of a maker schedule versus a manager schedule, which by the way, for folks listening is an incredible um, essay from uh, Paul Graham, um, one of the founders of Y Combinator. Um, but the downside is that it tends to create, uh, it, it, it tends to basically create silos at scale. Um, and so we see this now that, you know, you actually do need some amount of syncing um, in order to ensure that either work doesn't get duplicated uh, people aren't feeling misaligned and that they're actually just working on the right things. So I do think that you you need to have some meetings, but if you have a meeting on the calendar that just is no longer serving a clear purpose, we advocate for effectively just taking it off the calendar and doing a zero-based budgeting approach to you know how teams spend their time. Totally. And I'm very aligned with that. Uh, it's actually on my list for as we're starting Q4. Um, I've been reading something interest, interesting as well about like meeting approvals, which we do not have a micromanagement culture, but I'm not opposed to it. That like, if you're putting a recurring meeting on the calendar, you need department level approval for it. And PostScript's 200 people now, we've sprawled out a bit, uh, but I'm interested in that idea because I think there's meeting creep and meetings tend to stick around and they take up time and they get in the way of deep work and focus. Totally, yeah. The time cost of getting approvals is potentially more expensive than the decision itself. And I think maybe we were uh, loosely referencing a similar tweet, but that one did strike me as uh, quite a powerful concept. Um, I want to jump to our last question before we hit you with our rapid fire round. And the, the question is really just about how you've grown as a leader. Um, you know, there's like data that suggests that the average age of a unicorn startup founder is like 34. Um, you know, you, you guys at PostScript are probably close to a unicorn valuation. And, you know, you started this company in your like late 20s. So how have you had to 
mature as a leader over the past four years and maybe speak to some of the challenges that you faced in scaling as a person, as a human with Postscript's growth? So I'll answer this question, but I want your answer too, because you're, you're on a similar timeline and, and I, want, I want to hear. Um, what comes to mind for me is, so just this past weekend, Colin and Adam, who are my partners, we came together to work in person on Sunday and Monday of this last week. It's been a little while since we've done that, just the three of us. And so we've been reflecting a lot. And as part of that, we give each other feedback. And so these things are top of mind. You know, every new stage of company building brings just a whole slew of new challenges with it. And I don't think company success is predicated on size of team. I really don't. But I think that size of team is one of the biggest influences on, on like this form of company stage, right? When you're just the three co-founders, there's very specific challenges. And then after a while, you probably get used to or good at them. And then there's 10 people and it's a little family. And then there's 25 people and it's a little tribe. And then it's 50 and you kind of have a company. And then it's 150 or 200 and it's this thing that's like outside of your control and it, and it just exists and the decisions you've made now persist uh, and the norms you've put in place now persist. And each of those stages for me has brought a whole set of new challenges and it's required different things for me in terms of leadership. It's required me to spend my time differently. Um, it's required me to model different behaviors for the team. And what I've found is over the last four or four and a half years, right by the time you start getting comfortable or maybe decent at a stage, you're suddenly dropped into a new stage and you have to like learn and calibrate on like all these new things. And it takes a while. Um, so some of the specific things that stood out to me from the early days, um, the biggest was mindset. The feedback that Adam and Colin would give me in the early days was around reacting to things from a place of fear. So in business building, there's so much happening outside of your control. And we operate in a very competitive market specifically. And so, right, we were in YC with you and we were hearing from you guys about like big SMS competitors that were going to launch in the space. And like Clavio was, was, had announced that they were going to do SMS. And we were little shrimps who didn't know anything. And we were you know, we were little startup babies and that stuff was scary for me. And those are some big examples. There's all kinds of little micro examples as well. You know, losing a deal, a partnership, falling apart, whatever, whatever, all the bumps that you take along the way. And those things would often rock me a little bit. Maybe we would lose a candidate we really wanted. Maybe I would get a little down about them, or maybe I would just need to slow down after they happen. And it took a while for me to just learn that muscle that like actually the trick is like anticipating and accepting that there's a million bumps along the way and so much opposition and you constantly just get punched in the face by the world around you when you're trying to start a company. And like, for me personally, the trick has been just to learn to like enjoy them and anticipate them and let them roll off my back right away and accept them and like focus on the inputs that we are putting into the business and into our day to day. And so getting to a place where I react from a place of optimism, it uh, that that took a little while and that was like some hard growth for me. I'm reflecting on my answer now. And b because you articulated some of what my answer would have been, and it's interesting because I think our, our stories are, are paralleled at the level of learning to develop self-awareness, which has been the greatest gift of being a founder uh, and scaling up and going through tough times and good. Um, the idea, like I, I've regretted almost every single conversation or decision I've made when I've been in a state of being reactionary, right? Below the line. Um, 
one of my favorite books, The uh, 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, has this concept at the very beginning of the book called The Line. And you're either above the line or below the line. And being above the line is where you want to be always, right? It's uh, curious, open to learning, um, questioning, acceptance. It doesn't mean that you're just some, you know, uh, <laughs> stoic who's just, you know, sitting under a tree, um, not initiating thing in, things in life. But it's basically accepting that things are going to happen without my control or outside of my control. And I need to get really curious about those things and be intentional about the response. And so the greatest learning that seems to be uh, a continuation and something I continue to work on is knowing where I stand in relation to the line, especially in moments where I'm feeling emotional, I'm feeling down, I'm feeling disappointed, and taking a step back and working to get myself above the line before reacting. I think that's been one of the single biggest uh, things I've had to work on. Things like therapy... Um, things like giving and receiving performance feedback, like true cutting performance feedback frequently um, allow you to accumulate a level of self-awareness that is frankly just difficult to uh, internalize. But the line and being able to locate yourself on the line in those critical moments has been especially key for me. Totally. That, that makes me feel some camaraderie with you, by the way. And I'll also say that like, this isn't a challenge for everyone. Like growing at different stages is, but people have different strengths and weaknesses. Like uh, one of my partners, Colin, handles ambiguity and like external challenge better than anyone I've ever met. And like he has other things to grow and lessons learned, but like it's been really helpful for me to be able to see that and model some of that. Yeah, you can, I mean, I don't know how solo founders do it because the lessons, <laughs> the lessons you can learn or the shoulders you can lean on with your co-founders or co-founder um, can make the difference between surviving and throwing in the towel. Sure. And, I, you know, I have the benefit of also knowing your co-founder, Roger. And, you know, I think of you two as like pretty brilliant founders who came in with vision and like shared skills and interests, but also like you two also bring very different things to the table. I bet you like learn from each other constantly. And and my bet is that that probably hasn't stopped, even though, you know, you're four or five years in. Oh, yeah. It's uh, I, I think we've just gotten better to leverage each other in situations that are that will accentuate or call to the other person's strengths. So it's like self-awareness, but you also need other awareness um, and then be able to decide, like, should I be the best person or should, am I the right person to make this decision right now? Or should I bring in someone else? Or does this person actually have a unique take on the situation based on their strengths um, and lived experience that can make this a sharper decision? So I think that we've just found that, you know, uh, we, we can learn to anticipate each other and bring each other in in the right moments. And it's actually, I think, led to even like shorter syncs between us because we're sort of like on the same page naturally. Um, but, uh, you've got to get the feedback especially the cutting feedback. That's, uh, that's, that's the way forward. It is. Well, uh, I want to jump into our rapid fire round and go through a few of our quick questions. So we will give you a question and I'd love to hear your quick answer on it. How does that sound? Cool. Sounds great. All right. Most exciting opportunity in retail and in e-commerce. <laughs> Uh, I mean, by far text messaging, <laughs> it, most brands are not doing it. The ones that are, are, 
either not doing it super well or barely started. And like, so one of our larger customers, last Black Friday, Cyber Monday, they made more on SMS than they did email. And their SMS list is like one fifteenth the size. Like the opportunity is gigantic, gigantic. So definitely that. I know that I'm biased, but definitely that. <laughs> That's okay. You can be biased. A brand you love and why? <sighs> There's a lot of brands that I have, I have real affection for. Let me look and see what that's come through recently. No, you know what? There's uh, there's two that I'll say. So one is Hexclad. Are you familiar with them? They're a high-end cookware brand, um, you know, knives, pots and pans, things like that. And I just got my first products from them and I was really impressed. Like uh, I'm not a professional chef or close to it, but I've been getting more and more into cooking over the last few years. And like the like weight and clarity and like detail that goes into their knives, you can feel and it cuts very, very well. So that's, that's one. Uh, the other I'll say is just a personal favorite of mine in the pandemic. I got a little into golf and, um, there's a brand called Malbon golf. Um, they're like a kind of a, a streetwear meets golf brand. And, uh, they've got some fun stuff that I've been wearing and I've been enjoying. Well, we'll have to uh, get a round of golf together next time we're in Would each other's vicinities. Um, I, I will be spending a little bit more time in your neck of the woods uh, over the course of the next year. So hopefully we can make that happen, albeit in, uh, it'll, it'll probably have to be in su the summer months. <laughs> Please do. All right. Um, final question here, Alex. Uh, the kindest thing someone has done for you? <sighs> wow. It's a great question and a hard one. Probably my, my girlfriend, Caitlin. We've been together since uh, since before we started Postscript. And as you know, starting any company and maybe, I don't know, starting any company is very intense. Starting a, a remote tech company in a competitive space is very intense. And uh, the way that she's not only like allowed me to prioritize my work in the last four years in a way that I hadn't done before, but has also been like an active cheerleader of the company and of me and Adam and Colin and of what we're trying to do is um, I think has required so much from her. And I like deeply appreciate it. Well said. I'm sure there's just a lot of kind experiences and examples uh, within that, but uh, it is, yeah, the, the, the selflessness that's coming through um, is critically important to one's success, um, selflessness from their partners. Um, and, uh, I'm sure that's just been an accelerant. Uh, well, what an incredible conversation this has been, Alex. It's always it's great to fun. chat with you and we will have to eventually do a part two in person, maybe before a round of golf, maybe not after. <laughs> um, but this has been, you know, an incredible opportunity for folks to learn about SMS and how to scale as a leader. And so thank you so much for being on Legends of Retail. I've just had a blast talking to you. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks again to Alex for coming on the show and thank you for listening. To catch the latest episodes of Legends of Retail, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay updated by following Convictional on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Finally, if you want to share feedback on the show, I would greatly appreciate it. DM me on Twitter at Chris Grushi, or you can email me chris at convictional.com. That's chris at convictional.com. Thanks again for listening.